Good morning, church family. Welcome to our early service. We're glad that you're here. We're glad for those of you who join us online. So grateful that you're here and you're with us this morning. I'm also grateful for the 25% of you that will be joining us during the first song. And I'm thankful for the opportunity to welcome you. If you are a first-time guest, I've already met some this morning. It's your first time on our campus. Whether you're making your way into the worship center, you've already found a seat, or you're visiting with us online, we would love a record of your attendance. I know for those of you who are with us weekly, you, that sounds like a broken record. But let me give you just an example of, of how the Lord works. Last weekend, Memorial Day weekend, a day when historically churches know their folks are going to travel, we had 18 families visit us for the very first time. Families, not people, families. So, so you think about that. Almost 20 families came onto our campus for the very first time on Memorial Day weekend. And so we're grateful each and every week, though it sounds a bit like a broken record, to say to those of you who've never heard it, if you're new to Church at the Mill, we would love to connect with you. Many of you know my story. I grew up in really small churches. And one of the strengths of growing up in those small rural churches is deep relationships with everyone. We know that as our church has grown, as we developed an online audience, and as we have multiple services, and as the world is opening back up, people are looking for relationships, and we have to work hard to make sure you don't feel disconnected. We don't want you to just attend a service. We want you to know us, and we want to know you. The first step is that Connect card, and you can do it online, on our app, or there's one in the seat back in front of you for those of you here who are here with us on campus this morning. If you fill one out in the service, there are boxes located in the concourse and by the rear exits, you can drop that in that box. And this week, one of our pastors will reach out to you. We'll send you a gift card in the mail and just find out how we can connect you with the ministries of our church. Speaking of that, I have two prayer requests this morning. Uh, we uh, care deeply about the next generation. So this morning, uh, our high school ministry, or a great deal of them, around 80, left yesterday, drove 10 hours to the city of New Orleans, Louisiana. And our high school ministry is participating in a ministry called Mission Lab on the campus of New Orleans Baptist Theological Seminary, where I, Laurel and I were living before we became your pastor when we finished seminary many years ago. And so as soon as the second service is over, I am going to uh, break a few speed limit laws to get to the airport. I'm jumping on an airplane, and I'm going to be in New Orleans tonight preaching to our students, and I'm going to be there as camp pastor this week. But the students will join students from all over the United States. They're staying on the campus, and every day this week, they're going to go out to different areas of the city of New Orleans, and they're going to do ministry, construction ministry, backyard Bible clubs, VBS, prayer walk. And so be praying for our students. If you've ever participated when you were a student in a retreat, a camp, you know that getting away, getting outside of your rhythm and routine, and getting outside of your bubble is a great way for the Lord to speak to you. And tonight, we're going to talk about what it looks like to live out the gospel. So pray for our students. Then tomorrow, our middle school ministry is leaving for middle school camp, Somersault. They'll be in Charleston this week. And so if you care about our high schoolers and our middle schoolers, please this week pray for them. You may not know one of them by name, but you can pray for them. You can keep up with updates on our social media outlets to see what God is doing in their lives. And pray for me as I travel today. But I will be back with you on Sunday. So don't plan on taking next week off. I'll be here 
I plan for you to be here as well. Speaking of that, if we want to work down generations, we started with high school. I asked you to pray for middle school. Now I want to mention something that's very important. Our VBS and VBX is on its way. In just a few weeks, it starts Sunday, June 20th, and it runs through June 24th. That's Thursday. So Sunday night through Thursday night, that starts just in a few weeks. It is an incredible time. We think we're going to have a banner year because last year we did not cancel VBS and VBX, but we did have to do it virtually. It was online. It was in the living room of every child in and around our church. But we can't wait to throw the doors open on our campus to utilize our brand new student center, which is very soon to be completed, and to welcome hundreds hundreds of children, K3 through fifth grade, having completed the fifth grade. And we want your child to be a part of that, but we need you to be a part of that. One of the numbers that's meant so much to us, especially as a church not really driven by numbers, is that we've had 300 folks join our church during a pandemic. Well, that means that there are many of you that are new to church at the meal. It means that you've never served or been a part of our VBS VBX. VBS VBX is an all-hands-on-deck event. And guys, I want to challenge you on that. Let's not follow the national norms and have our tremendous ladies be the only people that carry our children's ministry. Our little boys need to see men serving and teaching and loving and enjoying children. And what's so exciting about VBS and VBX is that if you're new to Church at the Mill, it's been a little harder to connect because small groups have been suspended due to COVID regulations. Now, all that's opening back up in the fall. But if you're looking for a way to meet folks, to fellowship, and to enjoy a tremendous week on our campus, you need to be a part of VBS and VBX. And let me just say, I'm not asking as an addition. We need you. We don't have enough volunteers yet. God will always provide, but he provides through you. Now, some of you are thinking, well, Pastor, you don't know my schedule. I'm not sure I can be there every night. That's okay. Even if you can help serve one night, we want you to be a part of VBS and VBX. So here's what you can do. All of this information is online, but I would ask, and I mean this, if you're serious about helping us during this week, and I hope that you are, walk out these doors at the end of this service and just to the left side of the children's wing, that's the area you walk in, you see people checking their children in, the indoor play areas on the right. On the left is a VBS, VBX table. You can sign up to serve there, and we will give you the ability to choose what activities and to the degree to which you can commit. So please do that. We're always talking about serving the Lord. Uh, the last year has eliminated a lot of those opportunities. Here's a great opportunity. Our staff will be there every night. I'll be there every night. Looking forward to being with you. But let's make VBS and VBX a huge success. What a day we have this morning. I'm so excited to do something that I've been longing to do for quite some time. I get to preach Jesus in Jeremiah. We come to one of those great messianic texts, and I'll be honest with you, I need it. I need it. I'm plowing with you through this prophetic book. And this is one of those moments in this book where we get a picture of our Savior. We're going to celebrate him through song and through the Lord's Supper and through his word. To prepare our hearts for that, why don't you bow with me and let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for giving us the opportunity to come into your house. Thank you for those who have joined us today via the gift of technology. I pray that even now as we begin to prepare our hearts for worship that we would set aside distractions and that we would 
focus. You have not given any person in this room control over another mind, another heart. I'm limited in what I can do in the lives of other people. Yes, you want to use us to encourage one another, but the mind and the heart I am in most control of is my own. So, Father, right now, I pray that every mind and every heart would focus on you, that we would be drawn into your presence, and that no matter how we would describe our week, no matter how we would characterize our current spiritual condition, we would recognize that you are a sovereign God in control of all things. You make no mistakes. It is not by chance we're in this service this morning. And so my prayer is that you would meet us where we are and leave us changed. Father, thank you for your goodness today. In your name we pray, amen. Let's stand together, church. Let's think about the cross this morning. When I stand accused by my regrets And the devil roars his empty threats I will preach the gospel to myself That I am not a man condemned For Jesus Christ is my defense My sin is there Jesus Christ, my righteousness. 
Church family, you may be seated as we come to a time of reflection on what we just sang about. I just want to remind you of the significance of the Lord's Supper. It is not designed to feel a physical need, for it's just a small amount of nutrition. It's much larger than that. Eating is one of the most basic things we do as human beings, and Jesus knew this. In fact, he said, I am the bread of life. So what food is to the stomach of a human being, Jesus is to the soul. And so it is no surprise that on the evening before his arrest, he was observing the Passover with the disciples in the upper room, and he took this beautiful, beautiful ceremony known as the Passover, this symbolic meal that transcended centuries and out of that, he birthed what he gave to Christians, the Lord's Supper. Some of you grew up in a tradition that called it communion. And it has two parts, a bread and a cup, because there were two parts of his sacrifice on the cross, his body and his blood. Now, I want you to know, especially at a time when we're so grateful to have so many people visiting our church, you may be watching online and wonder, who can participate in this? The Bible's very clear that this is for believers. This is for people who've made a profession of faith. Of course, follow that with believers' baptism. If you're on that journey, if you've not yet made that decision, I know for Laurel and I, having in the middle of raising children, three of our children have trusted Christ. And three have not. They're not yet of that age, of that understanding. And we use this as an opportunity to explain to them that one day they too will participate. So this is for believers. And if you are not or not sure where you are, we invite you to participate by watching the believers around you. It's also for believers who are being honest about where they are in their relationship with the Lord. The Scripture is very clear that we're not to come to the table in an unruly fashion, haphazardly, that we should reflect. And if there be anything in our life or our heart that displeases the Lord, we are to confess that before Him. So it is really a purging of our soul to say, Heavenly Father, there are many things that I do that disappoint you, and I want to come before you and bring anything in my life to you that is not in your will and confess it to you and ask you to forgive me, as I know you will, before... I participate in the proclamation of your death, of your shedding of your son's blood for our sins. But in a day and age where there's so much disunity, this perhaps is one of the most unifying things in the kingdom of God. So if you would, bow with me and let's spend just a moment preparing our hearts. Heavenly Father, all around this room and on couches, chairs all over our world through the gift of technology. People are watching this service, and we want to honor you. We want to obey your word. So, Lord, as we reflect, I pray that any believer in this room who knows there's something standing between them and their relationship with you right now would confess that to you. 
but ask for your forgiveness and your grace, not haphazardly, not flippantly, not superficially, but would do so with the full intent of repenting, of turning. Lord, for those in this room who are not yet believers, they've not chosen you, they've not responded to you. Lord, I pray that they would recognize this is a table for them one day, that our desire is that every person who comes in contact with the gospel would turn in faith and trust Christ. Thank you for your body and your blood for giving it to us. Thank you for the opportunity to celebrate it. In Jesus' name, amen. The Bible says in the book of Luke, these words, and he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he said to them, take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom comes. And he took bread and when he had given thanks, he broke it and he gave it to them. And he said, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup, after they had eaten, he took it and he gave it to him and he said, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you drink it, do so in remembrance of me. You know what I'm grateful for, church family? I'm grateful that in a day and age where people, including us, are constantly bombarded with messages about where to find hope and where to find peace and where to find the energy to change our lives. I'm thankful of what I was taught as a little boy. It's perhaps what you were taught too if you grew up in the Christian tradition I'm thankful that in the midst of every other source of information, source of energy, source of influence, let me tell you what I'm thankful for. I am thankful today that the blood will never lose its power. Let's stand and sing.
Man, that's good. Mm. If you have your Bibles, I want you to find the book of Jeremiah. And as you find the book of Jeremiah, are you grateful for this worship ministry? I am so grateful for them. I'm grateful for the opportunity this morning to continue a sermon series we've entitled Lost Leaders. And I get to do something that I haven't been able to do in quite a while, just preach a few verses, and I'm excited about that, but not nearly as excited as you are. I know how you are. I know how you are. We've called this series Lost Leaders because we're in a section of the book of Jeremiah. We are preaching through the book verse by verse. We began uh, all about 10 months ago walking through this book, and we're going to continue through it until we finish. We'll take a break this summer. We have some incredible guest preachers coming in the month of July who will bless your heart. And then when we reconvene in August, when I have the opportunity to rejoin you, uh, I will uh, do a vision series as we launch our first satellite campus down in the Woodruff community. They'll be doing it with us, and then we'll dive right back into this book. But along the way, we found some amazing themes that run through it. And in these chapters in the 20s, the chapter 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, and 25, we see this prophetic word against the leadership of the nation of Judah. Now, Jeremiah is called to prophesy during the end of the nation of Judah's reign. The Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar is going to march and destroy Jerusalem in 586 B.C. To predate that, God sends Jeremiah to deliver the prophetic word that judgment is coming from God through the hand of the Babylonians due to the disobedience, the rebellion, the idolatry of the nation of Judah. And so Jeremiah's a hard book. God does not hold back. In fact, it proves his graciousness in that he doesn't punish without warning. He doesn't discipline without explanation. In fact, one of the things we learn in parenting is that when we follow the pattern of God our Father as human mothers and fathers, when we do punish, when we do discipline, it must always have with it an, expl ex an explanation of expectation and of consequence. We're not allowed to fly off and react as parents, and when we do, we may mess up. When we follow the pattern of our heavenly father, he warns, he asks for repentance. He longs for the heart of his children to turn back to him. And over the last few weeks, he's taken aim at the failed leadership of Judah. We know there's an epidemic of lost leadership in our world today. The world is reeling for leaders of integrity, for men and women of character, and especially for those who know and love the Lord God. And when we begin to study the Bible, what we find are the themes that we think are new to our generation are in fact not new. The human struggles of longing and feeling oppressed under wicked leadership is not something that is only for the modern era, only for those who are oppressed and persecuted today in countries where it would be illegal to do what we're doing this morning, to gather and to worship publicly and unapologetically. We're not the only people to have ever lived under corruption and divisiveness, nuance and agendas. And Jeremiah has a word for us about that in this series of sermons called Lost Leaders. And we get to chapter 23 this morning, and I only want to focus on the first eight verses because I've got good news for you. 
There is a leader who's never lost. There is a leader that is never lost. He's never lost in his own identity. He's never lost in a battle he's ever faced. He's never lost in his decisions, his direction, his wisdom, and his guidance. When we study God's Word, one of the things we come to realize is the brokenness of humanity, but more importantly, and far outweighing it, is the greatness of God. In fact, I would say to you this morning that no matter what you're going to face this week, Everything you're going to face, every decision you're going to make, every set of words you're going to choose to use, every bit of discernment you're going to try to apply to your life has to do with your ability to grasp the greatness of your God. In fact, this practice, you know, what are we doing here? This practice of weekly gathering for worship is done so because God deserves our glory and our worship but also because it builds our faith. I trust him more after I've been with his people. I trust him more once I've heard his word again. I trust him more after I've had the opportunity to sing songs I've sung all my life. I knew the words to those songs. I could have easily Googled them. I can even go on my iTunes account and find people more gifted, me, more gifted than me, which is not hard, and let them play and sing that song. But when I come together with God's people on the Lord's day in his house and I join the saints in singing and in preaching and in praying, the, the fire of my faith is stoked. It just matters. And when we come to a passage like this, what I want to accomplish more than any date I teach you, any name I explain, or any Hebrew word I try to help you unpack I want you to walk out of these doors in just a few moments with this in your mind. My, oh my, my great God is the leader who is never lost. I want you to read with me in Jeremiah chapter 23, beginning in verse 1, and I'm going to read the entire passage down through verse 8. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture, declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people... You have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I, God uses the first person, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Verse 6, in this days, in his days rather, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. In verse 7 and 8, close out the passage. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives, who brought up the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt. But as the Lord lives, who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country and out of all the countries where he had driven them, then they shall dwell in their own land. The leader never lost. This passage really has two divisions. First, 
there's a contrast between two leaders, our God as leader and the failed human kings of Judah. We see this in verse 1. Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture. Now, the word shepherd in the Bible is used in at least four ways. One is just regular old shepherd. You know, David was a shepherd boy. Then there's the spiritual shepherd. In fact, in the New Testament, the word shepherd coincides with the word pastor. The Latin word for shepherd is pastor, not pasture where they graze, P-A-S-T-O-R, pastor. So, so for example, my calling is to be a shepherd to God's people, to God and to lead, to feed the flock. I don't feed you grass because you're not sheep. I can't feed you policy because I'm not a political leader. I can't feed you money because I don't have much myself, but I can feed you the word of God. And so that's one way it's used. Then, of course, Jesus is called the ultimate good shepherd. But also, there are times when all leaders are called to be shepherds because of the parallel between what they do in the lives of humans and what a literal shepherd would do in the life of his flock. So if you think about the role of a shepherd, he is to keep them together. He is to take them to water, take them to green pastures. He is to protect them from predators. When they are sick, he is to attend to them. Now, if that in, with that in your mind, listen to how God describes those last kings of Judah. Remember last week I told you about the last four kings of Judah that Jeremiah served under, Shalom, which is Josiah's son, Jehoiakim, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah. Those are the last four kings to hold the throne before Jerusalem is completely destroyed and there is no king. For example, hundreds of years later, by the time Jesus is born, there's no king of Judah. There's some appointed people underneath Roman rule. Remember, the Roman proconsul was Pontius Pilate and the honored or recognized Jewish leader was Herod, but Herod was by no means considered a king the way these men were considered kings. And of the four last kings of Judah, Absolutely none of them got this right. What did they do? Look what your Bible says beginning in verse 2. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock and have driven them away. You have not attended to them. Think about the characteristics there of what a lost leader does. Destroy, scatter, drive away not attended. We can all go through our knowledge of human history and point to wicked leaders, and we can see that this ultimately is their legacy. They did not build nations. They destroyed them. They do not unite people. They divide them. They don't draw people on an agenda that helps society. They drive people away, and when people are hurting, they are not attended to. Now, this is not just for Judah. Ezekiel was called to prophesy against Israel, the northern kingdom. Listen to what Ezekiel said in his day about failed leadership. The weak you have not strengthened, the sick you have not healed, the injured you have not bound up, the strayed you have not brought back, the lost you have not sought, and with force and harshness you have ruled them. 
Ezekiel will go on to say, so they were scattered because there was no shepherd. They became food for all the wild beasts. My sheep were scattered. They wandered, he would say, over all the mountains and over all the high hill. My sheep were scattered over all the face of the earth with none to search and seek for them. Now, it's very important that you see the Scripture as a whole. Do you not sense in the Old Testament in places like Ezekiel and in places like Jeremiah that there is this longing for a good shepherd. Think about David saying, the Lord is my shepherd. What does he do? He leads me to still waters and to green pastures. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. I can even be taken by a pack of wolves and I'll not fear because of my shepherd. I just translated, thou preparest a table for me in the presence of thine enemies. And so there is this idea among the people of God in the Old Testament that of all the human leaders, there kept being failure after failure after failure. And God's going to deal with them. In fact, what does God tell them they did? They did not attend. They did not gather. In a play on words and some stinging sarcasm, look what God says he'll do to these evil leaders beginning in verse Two, the second phrase, behold, I will attend to you, <laughs> but his attendance is not the same. You know, you don't always want the attention of someone in authority, right? When I drive by a parked police car, I'd rather him not notice me. I don't want him to attend to me. I don't want to take any part of his day up. I don't want a little piece of paper from him. I would rather him go about his day and me go about my day. But sometimes, if I am in the wrong, it is his job, his role for civil safety to attend to me, to drive me to the side of the road, to pause my day and wreck my plans, to warn me that I may be violating a traffic law that could put me or others in danger. This is his job. You don't always want the attention of leaders, especially when you are on the wrong side of what is right and wrong. God says to these wicked leaders, don't worry, I will attend to you. Look at verse 4. He says, then I will gather a remnant, verse 3 rather, I will gather a remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. And then look what he says. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed, neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. So contrast the failed shepherd with the Lord's leadership. What does he do? He gathers, he brings back, he prospers, he provides. Now, for those of you who've been in this series with me, whether you're watching online or you're here with us this morning, we know that a lot of these people in their wickedness and rebellion are going to die. Jeremiah says that. The Babylonians are going to come. They're going to destroy. But one of the themes in the Old Testament is that God's desire was never to destroy his people. Even when he has to punish them, he always holds a remnant. In fact, he even says here, I will set over you shepherds that are good. If you were to keep reading your biblical timeline, you would find books like Ezra and Nehemiah, men like Zerubbabel and others who are in Babylon after all this takes place and God leads them to lead the people back and to reestablish a remnant. This is important. 
Because you may see God bring discipline into your life. And when God disciplines you for something, things may get destroyed. There may be relationships you have to walk away from because it's God's will. There may be bridges that you burned and you wonder how God is going to help you rebuild that. There will be consequences that God will not alleviate. One of the misconceptions of a cheap gospel is that if you run to Jesus, you don't have to deal with the consequences of your sin. What parent would parent that way? If you truly love your children, you will never disown them. You would never choose to not love them, but you will allow them to endure the consequences of the discipline so as to see their heart, their mind, and their actions changed. This is what love requires. So remember, in relationship to our failures, to God's discipline, God always, through the blood that will never lose its power, removes the condemnation of our sin. We stand forgiven, never more to be seen as unrighteous before him if we are under the blood of Christ. But he does not remove the consequences of our sin. And we don't just see this in the New Testament. We see it in the Old Testament where God says, yes, Israel and yes, Judah is going to undergo tremendous pain and sorrow because of their rejection and their rebellion. But I don't want to snuff them out. I will not abandon my promise. I will honor what I said. So I'm going to keep from me a righteous remnant. I'm going to keep from me a group of people who will turn back to me, and I'm going to restore them back to Israel. So much so that a second exodus is coming. So if you were in Jeremiah's day and you wanted to hang your hat on the most faithful exodus in history, it's, of course, the exodus described in the book of Exodus where God, through Moses, leads the people of Israel, who weren't the people of Israel then, they were just Hebrews, they didn't have a land, out of Egyptian slavery and into the wilderness and through the wilderness into the promised land. This is all recorded in the book of Exodus and in the beginning part of the book of Joshua. And so this was something that all Jews hung their hat on in Jeremiah's day. Our God led us out. When we were not a people, he made us a people. When we were landless, he gave us a land. When we didn't have a king, he gave us a king. When we didn't have a temple, he built us a temple. God was with us. God is going to do that in such a powerful way again that verse 7 and 8 tell us that the Jews will recount a second exodus. Look at verse 7. Therefore, behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when they shall no longer say, as the Lord lives, who brought the people of Israel out of the land of Egypt, first exodus, but second exodus, as the Lord lives, verse 8, who brought up and led the offspring of the house of Israel out of the north country, that would be Babylon, and out of all the countries where he had driven them, then they shall dwell in their own land. So the contrast could not be more clear and resilient. You have God who is nurturing, gathering, restoring, holding, and you have the earthly wicked leadership that is driving, scattering, and dividing. You need that when you read the headlines today. You need to know that. Let me tell you why. If you don't know that, you can get real cynical real fast. You can become angry and hateful toward people who don't know Christ. 
You can lose hope in God's plan for your life, your family, or even the nation that we call home. I'm not talking about being unrealistic. I'm not talking about naivety laced with optimism. I'm talking about men and women who recognize as long as human beings lead, there will be those who attempt to be right and those who attempt to be wrong. There will be those who do things the world celebrates and those who do things the world hates and rejects. And all the while, every human leader, whether it be a dictator, a politician, a military leader, an influencer, someone who is phenomenal in what they do and therefore they have influence in other people's lives, every human leader, if you look hard enough, you will find holes in their leadership. There is no perfect one. In fact, we should not even expect perfection of our human leaders. But then look what the Lord did. The Lord said, I'm going to do this. And by the way, he did. We have the written proof and the archaeological proof. He brought a remnant back. He rebuilt the wall, Nehemiah, rebuilt the altar, Ezra. And there's a remnant in Israel today. Today. Let me ask you a question. When's the last time you met a Philistine? Anybody ever met a Canaanite? No, all the ancient people of the world, history has swallowed them. But there are still Jews in Israel. There's a remnant. And that remnant was the remnant that produced a little girl named Mary who was faithful to the Lord. And from him, from her, came him who is the true leader. In fact, I kind of went fast to get to my favorite two verses this morning. And my last point, by the way, if you're new to our church, you don't know that that's a hopeless suggestion. <laughs> I want to show you the coming of a true leader. Look what happens in verse 5. The language changes. Some commentators believe this is one of only four or five messianic promises in the Old Testament. Now, I, I, I know sometimes we just use those words like everybody understands. So let me explain. In the Old Testament, the promise of a coming redeemer was one who was called the Messiah. In the Hebrew, it's Messiah, the Messiah. It carries the idea of someone anointed by God to redeem. The New Testament equivalent in the New Testament language, which was called Koine Greek, is Christos, Christ. So, so Messiah in the Old Testament, Christ in the New Testament carry the same idea of a promised redeemer from God's people, the Jews, to save the world from their sins. Now, of course, the New Testament introduces us to him by name, Jesus of Nazareth, Jesus the Messiah, Jesus the Christos, Jesus Christ. But the Old Testament was not foreign to his coming. In fact, one of the reasons that we believe so strongly in the accuracy of the Bible, which then determines its authority. Most people who attend churches like ours, on a given Sunday like ours, would say, yes, I believe the Bible. I believe it's the Word of God. But they cannot defend why they believe that. One of the reasons we believe that 
is that from start to finish, across centuries, across nations, across language barriers, across cultures, across different contexts, the message continues to stay the same. God created, sin broke. God pursues to redeem, to restore his creation. And the hero of this creative work is God himself who would take on flesh to redeem mankind from his or her worst enemy, which is the curse of sin that leads to death and condemnation. The Old Testament, while it did not fully see what you and I see by reading Matthew and Mark and Luke and John, fully knew that God of, that God of heaven was going to send a redeemer. And there are times in the Old Testament where we get these promises of Jesus. You'll hear uh, some pastors say a messianic prophecy. All that means is a place in the Old Testament where the Old Testament writer, under the influence and the guidance of the Holy Spirit, through God's power, promises that the Messiah is coming. We see it in almost every part of the Old Testament. And in the book of Jeremiah, we come to the most poignant moment so far where Jeremiah, through the inspiration of the Spirit, seems to leave his context. He's not talking about Jehoiakim and Jehoiakim and Zedekiah and Shalom and Josiah anymore. He's not talking about Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians anymore. All of a sudden, he uses some phraseology that should trigger our attention. Our ears should perk up. Our eyes should widen. Our heart might even speed up a little bit. He says, behold, the days are coming. The days are coming. This phrase goes all through the Old Testament, and it's always an indicator that the prophet has been caught up in the Spirit, and he's about to say something that transcends his own generation. The days are coming. And then he begins to talk about Jesus in Jeremiah. Look what the Bible says in verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I, now this is God speaking, will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. In his day, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. And this is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. And there it is, this beautiful promise of Jesus. I have just a few moments. Let me tell you about Jesus from just these two verses. The first thing this true leader gives us in the standpoint of characteristics is his legitimacy. Have you ever heard of people questioning the validity of an election? Um, have you read any articles about that? Now, just in case you thought we, this was new to us, did you know way back in the 1800s, Andrew Jackson and Aaron Burr in a presidential election got the exact same amount of electoral college votes? It took multiple actions by Congress to finally follow the Constitution as it was written and name Andrew Jackson as president. D did you know that during the heated election of Richard Nixon and JFK, there were multiple accusations of voter fraud. 
And, and, and while we think we're living in it right now under the Biden administration where some are questioning legi the legitimacy of the election, you remember the last administration, the Trump administration, there was a dossier from Russia that seemed to create questions about his election. And then I, I remember there were questions about the birth side of President Barack Obama. Was he born a U.S. citizen? And then we all remember Bush Gore, the hanging chads of Florida. I don't know if you remember that. So, so the reason I point all this out to you is not to make a statement on that. I got something far more important to you to preach than American politics. I just want to point out that you're not the first people to live at a time where a divided nation struggles with the legitimacy of a leadership. And one of the things that was happening in Judah is that there had been an epidemic of illegitimate leaders. These last kings, some of them were put in place by Pharaoh down in Egypt. In fact, Nebuchadnezzar names Zedekiah the, the king of the Jews until Zedekiah rebels against him. And so Jeremiah's had it up to about here with illegitimate kings. And he says, the days are coming when a king's going to rise, and notice what he says in verse 5. When I will raise up for David a righteous branch. Now, if you have a modern translation, you may notice that the word branch is capitalized. The reason for that is that the editors are trying to help you see that this is a messianic promise. We always capitalize the name of Jesus when you write papers in seminary and you get to pronouns that refer to God or Jesus. You always capitalize them because we honor that. In fact, I remember reading once in an editorial manual that you should capitalize the name of any deity, including Satan. I never would in any of my papers. They can take off if they want to. He's a little s, and that's the least of what I think about him. But you capitalize the pronouns, the proper names of God. The word branch comes from the same Hebrew word as sprout or grow. Nothing grows from a root unless it's connected. You can't have a beautiful tomato plant in your garden producing delicious ripe tomatoes of which you bring to your pastor and his family. You can't have that. You can't have that and assume that if you go and get a weak, uh, poor-producing, sickly-looking tomato plant and, and place it next to it, that by association, by proximity, it will be healthy. No, no, no. We know this is very basic. The fruit has to have the root. What Jeremiah is saying that the Lord is saying through this prophetic messianic promise is that when Jesus comes, he will be legitimate because he is truly out of the lineage of David. When David was dying, his last words are recorded in the book of 2 Samuel. In 2 Samuel chapter 23, it actually says David's last oracle. For does not my house stand so with God, David saith, has not God made a promise with me? For he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure, for he will not cause to prosper all my help and my desire. So David said as he's dying, God's made a covenant that from my house and through my lineage, he's going to do something that is so amazing 
so hopeful, so redemptive that all of those who are associated with it will be blessed. And guess what happens in Matthew chapter 1, verse 1? Matthew chapter 1, verse 1, the first lines of the New Testament. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David. Now, Jesus was the son of Mary. He was the stepson to Joseph. Joseph was not his biological father. He had no biological father. Conceived through the power of the Holy Spirit in the womb of a virgin. Therefore, he did not carry the sin nature that you and I carry. This is why the virgin birth is so important. However, we all know that when Jesus was growing up, Mary and Joseph were seen as his mother and his father, as they should have. They were the ones who went and looked for him when he stayed behind and taught in the temple. They were the ones who were questioned. His family was questioned when he began his public ministry. But Matthew, writing to a Jewish audience, says, listen, he is the son of David. Why? Because it was through the lineage of David that the covenant of a redeemer was promised. And David was the son of Abraham. Why? Because it was Abraham that God called out and said, through you I'm going to birth a nation, and out of that nation I will bless the world. It was Abraham who was given a picture of Christ when he was asked to do what God stopped him from doing, sacrifice his one and only son, a foreshadow that Abraham's God was willing to do what Abraham would never ask you and I to do, to sacrifice his one and only son. I want you to know that you hold in your hand not just a big old, at times confusing book. You hold in your hand one redemptive story and Jesus is the hero. And this matters because I'm not asking you to invite the Bible into your heart. I don't want you to trust the Bible as your personal Lord and Savior. I'm not interested in you becoming a Baptist or a Methodist or a Presbyterian. It makes no difference to me what you choose to like or dislike about preferences in music as long as the theology are solid. I don't care if you wear blue jeans to church or a three-piece suit. I want you to be in a personal relationship with the Redeemer who's the son of David, the son of Abraham. And when you know him, then all of a sudden his word begins to come alive. He is the legitimate heir to all things past and present, but he's not just celebrated for his legitimacy. You can be rightly elected, rightly chosen. He's celebrated for his effectiveness. Look what the Bible says in verse 5. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up David, up for David, a righteous branch. Now listen to what he does. And he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. What was Zedekiah? Jehoiakim. Jehoiakim. Shalom. Those four final kings, what were they not doing? They weren't practicing wisdom. They were not practicing righteousness. Isaiah saw this same Jesus. He says, there shall come forth a shoot same idea, branch, sprout, shoot, from the stump of Jesse. By the way, Jesse was David's father. And a branch from his root shall bear fruit, and the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the Spirit of, look, wisdom and understanding, the Spirit of counsel and might, the Spirit of knowledge, and the fear of the Lord. 
Isaiah would go on to say about this prophetic word. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor, decide with equity for the meek and for the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. Isaiah would go on to say, and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist, and faithfulness the belt of his loins. Our world is spinning looking for good leaders. I got one. I spoke to him this morning. I met him when I was eight. He's never lied. He's never broke his word. He's never been unwise. He's not confused. He does not need to go find his footing, his agenda, or his wording. I got a God and a king who's never heard of, nor does he need a teleprompter in one of his presentations. There are no speechwriters for my king. He lives and reigns with righteousness and wisdom. And this is what they said of Jesus. <laughs> Remember what the Bible says about Jesus when he was young? Jesus increased in the wisdom and the stature in the favor with God and man. Do you know what Paul says about Jesus? He says, in him in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Our world is killing itself looking for knowledge. We're trying to redefine everything that is obvious. And no matter what side of debate you're on, you're told to follow the science. It is a constant effort of a lost world seeking and thirsting for unchanging truth. I know him. I know him. And if you know the Lord, you know him. He's effective in his rulership and his reign. Now, I wouldn't be a pastor if I didn't ask you a question. Is his effectiveness seen in your life? Friend, don't think that I'm suggesting you can't be confused. I'm confused a lot. I'm a husband. <laughs> Don't think you can't reach the end of your patience. I'm a father. Don't think you can't fail miserably. I'm, I'm a human. I'm not suggesting that you and I can believe all these things about the coming Messiah who has come and somehow always emulate them. I am suggesting, I'm asserting. To some degree, I'm joining the word in demanding. I'm not asked to live like I always have the answer or I always know what to do or I always feel the same. I'm asked to live like I know the one who does have the answer who knows what to do, and who never changes. In fact, that's a rock we build our life on. So when the winds of life blow us left or right, we don't lose our standing, not because of our identity, but because of his identity. His effectiveness follows through with his accomplishments. What does he do? What does this leader do? Look what it says will happen in verse 6. In his days, Judah will be saved and Israel will dwell securely. Remember, Israel's already destroyed. It's gone. 
Judah's about to be destroyed, and he says, no, they're going to dwell securely. And this will happen in his days. Now, this messianic promise encompasses not only the life of Jesus, but the future coming of Jesus. How does the Bible end with a picture of the future? What does Revelation say? John says, then I saw a heaven, a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw a holy city, a new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And what's going to happen in this city? Don't think pearly gates, streets of gold. Those are important. But here's what's most important. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. And what will this mean to dwell with God in person forever? He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be no more mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. The former things have passed away. So to dwell in person with God is to be saved in Israel and to be totally secure because I don't need an ambassador. I don't need a president. I don't need a governor. I don't need a mayor. God himself will dwell with his people. You can kiss dictatorships goodbye. You can say goodbye to socialism and capitalism. You can say goodbye to authoritarian rule or democratically elected rule. We will be in a theocracy. We will dwell under the leadership and the lordship of our God, and he is the good shepherd which leads to his legacy, and I'll close. Jeremiah says, in his name, and he gives him a sentence. You ever wish you were named a sentence? Remember that movie, Dances with Wolves? They named Kevin Cosner that because the first person he befriended from the tribe of Native Americans saw him messing around with a wolf that had become almost a pet, so they named him Dances with wolves. I wondered what my Indian name would be. Eats lots of deer. <laughs> Runs slowly before coffee. I, I don't know. I don't know what my name would be. Of course, Native Americans are not the only ones to do this. There are many civilizations where you're named a characteristic of who you are that becomes who you are. We tend to do it in nicknames, right? Some of you struggled in middle school, stinky, and those things. But we... We, we have this name in the Bible that is given to us in a sentence. He says, and this verse 6, last phrase, is the name by which he will be called. The Lord is our righteousness. Zedekiah's name translated in Hebrew is Yahweh is righteous. This is absolutely God giving a sideway glance to the failed human leadership and saying, when I send my king, he will become your righteousness. How does this work for you and for me? Well, Paul explained it. You know what Paul said? For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers, that not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. But what does Paul say? Not many of noble birth, 
But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low to despise the world. Even things that are not to bring nothing, things that are. And how does he close it? He says, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Now watch. Who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. What did Jeremiah say? Jeremiah said, and behold, the days are coming where he will reign wisely and his name is righteousness. And they did come. And when he lived and died and rose again, now all who are called to him understand his righteousness and his wisdom come into our life. You know what that means? It means we should be what Paul was. I am not ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God to salvation to everyone who believes. And I love the way that verse ends. For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. You never have to live leaderless. You do not have to live leaderless. Look to Jesus, righteous, wise, good, caring, faithful, true, strong, victorious, and coming again. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for teaching us about Jesus in Jeremiah. Thank you for your grace and your wisdom in our life. Thank you for the privilege and the opportunity to be reminded of that. And even as we prepare to worship these last few moments, I pray that you would move in our lives. With your head bowed and your eyes closed, we're going to stand and we're going to sing. Our prayer team is here at this altar. Our prayer room is open. If you were nervous about taking the Lord's Supper, if you're not sure where you stand with Christ, if you know the Lord and you have been living under the leadership of your own wisdom, and today you want to come to this altar and deal with him, we want you to do that. If you have a need I've not even voiced, if you'd just like to speak to someone confidentially, our pastors are ready at the altar, as are our prayer team members. Our prayer room in the concourse is filled with people ready to receive you as well. Don't leave if the Lord is dealing with you with your heart and your life. And in the spirit of what we've just preached, we thank him for what he's done. Father, you move now as only you can in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand. Let's sing this together. Hallelujah. Sing it, church. Thank you, Jesus. I was a prisoner.
last phrase again. Hallelujah for the cross. Aren't you thankful for that today? What a beautiful service we've had. Thank you all so much for being here this morning. I want to just say as you exit, if you are new and you'd like to meet our pastor, he'll be standing between these two doors in the hub. He'd love to say hello to you. I hope you all have a great week. God bless.